1 through 9, God's word says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in his former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, may we not grow tired or weary, but may we wait on you. And as we wait on you, may we have our strength renewed as the eagles. May we be faithful to the task you've given us. Lord, we do get discouraged and frustrated. And as we hear your word, would you encourage us, motivate us, strengthen us to give and do the task that you have given us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, today is the 161st day of 2018. 161 days since the new year started with many resolving to do better. How are your resolutions going? Have you finished the book? Have you stuck to the diet? Have you lost the weight? Did you maybe not make any resolutions because you knew you probably weren't going to keep them anyway, so why make something you weren't going to do? Oh, those are dumb. Why would I do that? But it's an interesting phenomenon that we can be so excited to do something one day and a few days later, it's the last thing we want to do. January 2nd, you wake up and you have your athletic gear on and you're hitting the door before the alarm goes off. January 5th, you're mentally calculating, how many times can I hit the snooze and still squeeze this workout in? January 8th, you're Peppermint Patty hitting that alarm clock across the room. One week and what you wanted to do the first day, you now, ugh, I don't want to do that anymore. And this happens in so many ways. You know, the Bible study, the church plan just began, so many people excited. And then a while later, you, where, where did everyone go? We had a neighbor once who every, almost every spring would go out and buy a couple hundred dollars worth of plants and bushes and trees. And every spring, a couple weeks later, there'd be a couple hundred dollars of dead trees, plants, and bushes. And yet, every, almost every spring, resolved to get these in and didn't do it. You know, getting started is a breeze, but continuing is hard work. And it's amazing all that we can do, all the excuses we can make when we don't want to do something. You may have read the comic Calvin Hobbes, one of my favorite. The author of it, Bill, uh, Bill Watterson, says, A day can really slip by when you're deliberately avoiding something you're supposed to do. And sometimes that'll catch up with us. And we've been avoiding it for so long, and now we have to do it, and we have to rush to get it done ASAP. Watterson again notes, 
You can't turn on creativity like a faucet. You have to be in the right mood. What's the right mood? Last minute panic. And losing motivation is not merely a 21st century phenomenon. It's one that transcends time. Here, this is Haggai's second sermon. And as we look at it this morning, we're going to see that he's trying to motivate people who have lost their motivation. They need encouragement. And so he responds in three ways. If you have a bulletin, you can see this outline on the back of it there for you. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that God realizes the seeming insignificance. Then in verses 4 through 5, God is going to tell them, Be strong, for I am with you. And then in verses 6 through 9, the third section, Look forward to what I, God, will do. Well, first, in verses 1 through 3, God realizes the seeming insignificance. Now, we noted last week that Haggai is one of the easiest books to divide up into sections because it's divided into four sections because each sermon tells you the day he gave it and then what he did. The first sermon that we looked at last week was in the second year of Darius in the sixth month on the first day. And we said if you convert that to our calendar system, it's probably near the end of August. And then in that sermon, we saw that he motivated them to start rebuilding the temple. And then we saw at the end of the chapter that they began doing that on the 24th day of the sixth month. So 23 days later, they began doing this work. Well, now the second sermon begins on the 21st day of the seventh month. So to bring this all together, this is seven weeks from the first sermon, four weeks from when they started rebuilding the temple. And in just four weeks, their initial enthusiasm has waned. And God realizes that he must again send Haggai to send a message of encouragement and motivation. And Haggai gives a clear reason why they are discouraged. Though the construction progresses, a thought, a troubling thought, has crept into their mind. Those who are older have been comparing what they're rebuilding to what Solomon originally built. And God asked them three questions to draw this out. This is verses 2 through 3. He asked them, Who was left among you who saw the former house? It's a question of looking back. And there are probably some who are in their early 70s who went through the full cycle. They lived in Jerusalem. They were there when it was destroyed. They were taken into exile. And now they returned with the remnant. And they are there to rebuild. Remember, the destruction was in 587 B.C. This is in 520 B.C. That's 67 years. So if they'd been five years old, you can probably remember things when you were five. They're now 72. And they're remembering, it was beautiful. And what we're doing is so small in comparison. Second, that leads to the next question. How do you see it now? And then third, how do they compare the glory of this current temple to what was before? And to understand the answer to their questions, we need to realize what else is told to us in the Old Testament. Because 20 years before this, they had come and relayed the foundation of the temple, and they had reset the altar. But then in Ezra chapter 3, which recounts all this, it says in verses 12 through 13, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the foundation of the house, because of the foundation of the house being laid, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard 
far away. So as these old priests and these old people who relayed the foundation of the temple, when they saw it, they were brought to tears because of how small it was before. And in Zechariah 4.10, talking about the same time frame, it talks about how they talk about the small thing that they are doing. And in their mind, and we'll see in reality, the former temple makes what they are doing look paltry, poor, insignificant. Thus they are discouraged because when they compare what Solomon built and the glory of the former temple to what they are building, it seems small, trivial. And it's very likely that as these older people complaining, pining for the good old days, that the workers are being discouraged. As well, let's consider this second sermon and the date of it and how that shines light on how they might be being discouraged. This is the seventh month. Now, for them, the seventh month is what December is for us. You know, we often don't talk about Christmas Day. We talk about the Christmas season. Because it's like a whole season of parties and celebrations, everything you go to. Well, for them, the seventh month was their Christmas season. Why is that? Well, they had three different holy days that they celebrated in the seventh month. First, on the first day of the month, they would have celebrated the Feast of Ingathering. Now, that is when they brought from their harvest what they had brought from their, what they had gained from their fields. As you remember or may know from last week, they were having a drought because of their sin, because they weren't prioritizing God's work. And so what can they bring to the Feast of Ingathering? Almost nothing. That's discouraging. Well, then second, on the middle of the month, slightly earlier, the 10th day, they would have done the Day of Atonement. Another day where they would have had to stop working and celebrate. And third, they would have stopped everything for a week to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Now, if you want to look all this up, you can read it all in Leviticus 23. It tells you about all these feasts. But during this feast, the Feast of Booze, they would take branches from trees and palm trees and they would set up a makeshift tent. And everyone would stay in it for a week. Imagine that, mom and dad, camping out for a week in a tree hut you make. And they would do this because this reminded them of their ancestors who came out of Egypt and they lived in the wilderness in booze. Now, the Feast of Booze occurred from the 15th to the 22nd. Well, that's significant because what day is this sermon? It's on the 21st. So we're at the pinnacle of all their celebrations. And not just that, this, the seventh month, is the actual month when Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple and they began worshiping in the temple. This was the month where they would remember, and as they remember what happened 440 years before, they again look around and go, what are we doing? This is so insignificant. And so as they prepared for work, all this would be going on in their mind. Now imagine December 1st, someone comes to you and says, hey, let's launch this big project. You go, no, 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 let's wait to the new year. We're not going to get anything done during December. Well, they've been going for a month. And as they've been having these celebrations, they're probably also looking around and going, you know, it's been four weeks and we've barely got anything done. We, we barely have got rid of the rubble that's still left. And we know when we do, it's going to be so small compared to what Solomon built. And as they were discouraged, as they were frustrated, God sends his messenger, Haggai, to encourage and motivate them. One of my favorite movies is Father of the Bride. In it, Steve Martin can't come to terms that his 
little baby girl is now grown up and is going to get married. And the movie has all kinds of funny things that happen because of that. But finally he comes to grips with the fact that his daughter is going to get married. And he's so excited that he goes and gets the 10-speed bike she rode growing up. And he, gets it, he takes it to the shop. They fix it all up. He has a little ribbon on the front. And he's giddy. He's so excited that he's going to give his daughter, who's going to get married, her old bike. And he's just about to wheel it down the driveway. And the in-laws-to-be drive up with a brand new Jeep that they're going to give to the engaged couple. Steve Martin looks down at the bike, looks up at the Jeep, goes, what is this? I'm fixing up a 10-speed, an old 10-speed And they give a new car. And like Steve Martin, like the people of Haggai's time, we can look around and go, is what I'm doing even matter? You know, we work tirelessly. We pour our heart out. We study, we plan, we get ready for Sunday school, and one person shows up. We get ready. We do all the work for this. We're going to encourage our neighbors. No one comes. We plan. We're so excited about this. You know, we find, okay, we're going to throw our kids one big birthday party. We don't do it all the time, but we're going to do a big one. You're all excited. You plan. You save. You skimp. A week before, you go to someone else's birthday party, and you go, oh, what we're going to do next week is nothing. It's going to be so boring after what they've experienced this week. And we get discouraged and think, does what I do even matter? It's so paltry. It's so insignificant compared to... To others. And then we look at other, you know, we look, you know, we have classes with four grades. We have all adults together, all teens and high schoolers. They have classes down the street or across the city. They got to have multiple classes for one age group. What are we doing? Does this matter? And we may not compare to other places. We may compare to different times. Oh, if we could just be like the New Testament times or the Reformation, or the Great Awakening, when people heard the Gospel, Christians loved each other, life was vibrant, and then there's us. You know, we're not horrible, but I mean, we're us. Couldn't we be like those times? When people were excited, and you could see tangible fruit, and people longed to be in God's house. And now, uh, is what we're doing matter? We can pine for the good old days. Oh, Don't you remember when? And as we compare with different places, different times, different people, we again wonder, is there any significance at all? But notice God's amazing compassion. That He doesn't say, y'all need to get to work. You know, verse 3 is really irrelevant. But because God loves them, He draws out of them what they're already thinking. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. God is the ultimate being of understanding, and He draws out what is already residing in their hearts, in their thoughts. And He's letting them know, I care. Their situation matters to God. And notice He's realistic and compassionate. The realism that is in comparison to the former glory of the temple, the reality is what they are doing does not compare. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. You know, God doesn't brush over the harsh realities of life or act like the former days really weren't that good. 
And we can rejoice that God deals with reality. Not rose-colored glasses. He's not Pollyanna like, oh, everything's wonderful when it's not. God is compassionate and loving, but also true and firm. Several years ago, there was a commercial that had a drill sergeant being compared to a therapist. And as a young man was lying on the couch, tearfully telling about why yellow made him sad, the therapist, the drill sergeant replies, you know what makes me sad? You do! You make me sad. Maybe we should chug over onto Mamby Pamby land where you might get some self-confidence, you jackwagon. He's all lying. Be tough. Be strong. But God is a lion and a lamb. God is a lamb and a lion. He's compassionate and firm. He not only calls us to action, He also sympathizes. He not only sympathizes, He also calls us to action, which is what happens next. For in verses 4 through 5, God tells them, Be strong, for I am with you. You see, God responds to their discouragement and their thoughts of insignificance with a contrast. He says, Yet now. Rather than wallowing in their sour emotions, he personally calls each of them to be strong. Governor Zerubbabel, be strong. Priest, Joshua, be strong. All people of the land, be strong. Now the point is not that we don't realize and grieve with people, but we can't stay in the grief. Eventually, we have to move forward And we have to take the tough challenge of being strong, doing the work that God puts before us. Now, note that they started this work 15 to 20 years before. So God's not being unsympathetic. Well, you've had a day to grieve. Let's get back to work. Okay, but 15, 20 years, that's enough time to grieve over the old temple. Now let's get to work. Again, God sympathizes and exhorts. He does both. And as often in the Bible, when we have a seemingly impossible task, God calls us to be strong. As Israel prepared to cross the Jordan River without Moses, God came three times and spoke to Joshua and said, Be strong. Same word, and courageous. When David sought to motivate his own son Solomon to the building of this temple, he said in 1 Chronicles 28, Be strong. Same word. And courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord Your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. You know, Haggai is taking the exact words that King David encouraged his own son in the building of the temple to now encourage in the rebuilding of the temple. And this same message is given to us. Ephesians 6, 6, in the spiritual fight, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, this isn't a locker room pep talk. Haggai, the coach, isn't throwing chairs saying, go fight like men. He's saying, be strong in the Lord. Because he tells them they can be strong for the Lord is with them. And as God told them in 113, God told them, I'll be with you. He now reassures them of his presence. You know, God often gives his reminder of his presence when we go through difficult tasks. Even the Great Commission. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, sometimes we sing the song Abide With Me. It says, I need thy presence. Every passing hour, 
What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. So that's why they can be strong, because God tells them he'll be with them. And though God's presence is with us individually, there's a greater sense the Bible talks about in which God's presence is with us corporately. He even says, where two or three are gathered, there I'll be in your midst. That's not to deny that he's with us present, personally. But there's a greater sense in the gathering of God's people. But the sad reality is often when we get discouraged, when we lose our motivation, when we're depressed, we withdraw from the very things that would help us. You know, if you're hungry and you said, you know what, I'm hungry, so I'm not going to eat. People go, well, that's ridiculous. Well, I'm depressed, so I'm not going to read my Bible right now. I'm discouraged, so I'm not going to go to church. That's what you need. That's the food where God's presence is given. Don't starve yourself. Seek Him in His Word. Seek Him in prayer. Seek Him with His people. And along with the power and encouragement that comes with God's presence, God is working with them. That shows something very important. The fact that God is with them, working with them, shows the significance of the task. You know, certain tasks are deemed too important for certain people. And at times it's true. Some people, their skill, their wisdom, their know-how, you wouldn't want them doing that task. You don't have the CEO of the company go down to the mail room and sort the mail. You don't have the commander-in-chief be the one who changes the oil and the vehicles. They have more important tasks to do. But here, the God of the universe works with his people. And though in our world, we often think those tasks are below me, when God entered our world, there was no task that was below him. He came and he washed his disciples' feet and then told them, go and do likewise. Jesus said in Mark 10, 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and they are great ones who exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Can there be anything more significant than serving others like our Savior? You know, don't judge your significance by how it compares to mere humans. Judge by how it compares to the God-man, Christ, and what He did. But not only that, it goes on in verse 5 that they should work because God is going to be loyal to them just as He was to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, when He made a covenant with them at Sinai. His Spirit is still with them as He was with them before in, ex in the Exodus. And just as the Spirit of God guided, sustained, and provided for the people of God before, so He's going to today. In other words, look at God's past faithfulness to find encouragement for what you're going through today. You know, the prior stories of God's work, those aren't just nice stories, they're not myths, they're reality. It's how God lives and works with His people take heart in what you've seen before. And thus, they don't need to fear. Now, notice something interesting. Last week in chapter 1, verse 12, we saw that they rightly responded 
to God motivating them by calling them to reprioritize not just their own lives, but serving Him, they responded by fearing God. But here, God tells them not to fear. It's like in Exodus 20 when Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. In other words, don't have the wrong fear that means you're guided by people, by your circumstances, but rather have the fear that God guides you and God directs your life. In Haggai's sermon, this means that rather than letting their life be oriented and guided by the fear of the surrounding nations, are they going to attack? It should be guided by what God says, what He will do. Rather than being guided by their discouragement at the lack of the temple's glory, they should be guided by the fact that God's Spirit is with them. And since God is with His people, we should take heart. There is no task that is too insignificant to do for Him. The numbers may seem small. The comparison with others may show it to appear insignificant. But that is not how God evaluates it. In Mark 9, Jesus is teaching His disciples the importance of serving. And there He says in verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose His reward. A cup of water. What's a cup of water? And yet Jesus is saying that it's not just the dramatic, the seemingly large, significant acts that God honors and rewards. Even the cup of water in His name will be rewarded. And we can easily think, no one's noticing, no one cares, what I'm doing isn't changing anything. But God notices. God cares. It's not insignificant to Him. So whose eyes are you allowing to be the deciding factor of the significance of your task and your life? Your own? Those of the people around you? Or the Lord of the universe? Well, they should not only be strong because God works with them, but they should also realize that they need to stop looking back and instead look forward to God, what God will do. Our third and last section, look forward to what God will do in verses 6 through 9. God says He's going to come and shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Now heavens and earth are what are called merisms. It's something that is, gives the two extremes and means everything in the middle. Like we may say, they covered everything from A to Z. We say that to say everything from both ends and everything in the middle. So when God says He's going to shake the heavens and the earth, He means, I'm going to shake everything. I went from the top to the bottom. So the whole universe is going to be shaken. Now this could be referring to the fact that in just a few years, God will shake the Persian Empire and the Greeks will come. Alexander the Great and conquer. The earth is going to be shook. But I think there's probably a deeper significance to it. We're not going to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews refers to the shaking that occurred at Mount Sinai when Moses was there with the people. And then he quotes this verse from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. And his point is that the Israelites, all they heard was they just heard a voice on Mount Sinai. Whereas the people he's writing to in the book of Hebrews, they heard the words of the Son of God Himself. And since Israel was punished 
for failing to heed what they heard. So they, the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, will have a greater condemnation, for they have a greater revelation from God. And when God spoke on Mount Sinai, it shook everything around it. But in the future, He's going to shake all things, referring to the final judgment, willing to destroy everything that is temporal. God's kingdom, though, will last. It will not be shaken. And that's what he says in Hebrews. So we should take heart that the kingdom we serve will not be shaken. And so we can serve God with awe and gratitude, it says. Because we're using our time, we're using our energy for something that's not going to go away. You imagine all the men and women who served for the Persian Empire to make it great. And now all the Persian Empire is a record on some dusty history books. It's a distant past. But we get to serve for something that has a glorious future. Something that cannot be shaken. Where every cup of cold water will be remembered. And so bringing it back to Haggai, when they see that God shakes the world, the nations, verse 7 tells us, will also be shaken. And they will bring in all the precious things to fill God's house with glory. They may not have that much great resources, but God tells them, everything in the earth belongs to me anyways. I'm going to bring it in. It's going to be beautiful. Now, this is a theme that goes throughout the prophets, that the glory of the nations will come in. Isaiah 60 verse 5 says, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Or Zechariah 14.14, The wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Or what was read earlier, Revelation 21.26, They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And this again will happen because all their silver and gold on the earth is God's. Do you remember from last week, chapter 1, verse 6? It seemed like their money bags had holes. The money just went through. We don't have any silver and gold, but... God never needed to go back to the bank and ask for an extension on the loan. Ask for a greater amount. God's never run out and said, Oh, I didn't plan well enough. We actually need some more gold for the temple. God has it all already. And one day He will bring it all in. And it goes on to verse 9, that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. You know, the shaking will be so great that Solomon's temple won't even be remembered anymore. Instead, the future one will outshine it. And that happened. Though what they built was not that great. Later, Herod, wanting to give favor to the people, spent a lot of money to make the temple bigger and glorious. And in Mark 13, the disciples came out of the temple, it says, and said to Jesus, Lord, teacher, look, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. The temple was magnificent. The temple was glorious. But then Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will be left, not left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So there was a fulfillment in a physical temple. But Jesus is pointing to a greater fulfillment. Thus he says in Matthew 12, 6, Something greater than the temple is here. When Jesus went and cleansed the temple, they say, Well, what sign do you give us? How do you do these things? And Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, the temple represented God's presence. And Jesus came and fulfilled the meaning of the temple. You know, Jesus is the fulfillment of the greater and more glorious temple to come. You may have noticed when we read Revelation 21 earlier, it says, there's no need of a temple because the Lamb is there. The Lamb is the temple. The Lamb is God's presence brought to us. But the remnant of Judah, as they looked around, all they could see was ruins. A ruined temple that was so meager, pathetic. And God's telling them, don't look at the past, the Solomons. Don't look at the present and what you're rebuilding. Look at what I'm going to build. You know, God will use all their efforts for the expansion and glory of His kingdom. And one day, we'll see it manifested in something more glorious than we can see even today. And yet God gives even one more amazing promise at the end of verse 9. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Because that place is the Lamb, and the Lamb gave His blood to take away the sins of the world, there can be peace. Now, peace is a rich word. It doesn't just mean personal inner well-being, though it doesn't deny that. It's the word shalom. It means wholeness. Because the Lamb came, because this glorious temple will be restored, we'll have a whole relationship with God where there's no more strife and enmity. We'll have whole relationships with one another that are only characterized by love and harmony. We'll have a whole relationship with the world where there's no more disasters, no more poverty, no more sickness. And the peace came again because of the Lamb who purchased it with His own blood, Jesus. He died in your place that you might have wholeness, that you might have peace, that you might have what this world was intended to be. You know, right now, we have an appetizer of the feast that's to come. But when we are in His fully consummated kingdom, we will experience all the elements of this peace. He is our hope. And that is really the point, because notice that in God's desire to encourage them, notice some things He didn't say. Ha! Don't worry, it's not really that big a project. You can do it. You can do everything you set your mind to. You are the power of change. No. God makes clear the only hope for change is Him. The only thing that's going to bring this glorious temple is Him. And yet He encourages, He calls us to work alongside Him. You know, the most abiding and the most lasting comforts and motivations in this life, they're not other people. They're not your own abilities and resources. The most lasting motivations and encouragements are God. That He is with you. You know, even youth, they get faint and tired. Young men, they fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord, they renew their strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and they don't get weary. They walk. They don't faint. You know, the story is told of a poor widowed woman. She barely had anything in life. And yet she wanted to see God's temple be glorious. I mean, she had so little, she actually had two coins mounted to all of about a penny. 
And she went, and she went to the temple on Jesus' day, and she put in two coins. And when Jesus saw this, he realized something significant had just happened. And he called all his disciples together, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live in. You know, the temple treasury had these 13 horn-shaped containers in which people would put their money in. So as the money went down the horn, make a lot of noise if you put a lot in. Two coins doesn't make much noise. And the reality is, what did two coins do to contribute to the glory of that temple? Almost nothing. It seemed insignificant. You know, she was the type of person that the world deems insignificant. And yet the reality is that Jesus says that was the most significant gift given today. What the world deems of no value, our Savior deemed of the greatest value of all. Well, why? It was the costliness of her gift. Everyone else, they're just giving out of the surplus of what they have. But she gave out of her lack. Literally, she gave out of her bios, out of her life, biology. She gave everything she had. In God's eyes, it's not the size of your task. It's not how many people are there. It's not what are the ramifications of what's going to happen afterwards. It's why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? Even a cup of cold water in his name will not lose its reward. Well, let me end with this. You know, last week, as we noted, how does this apply to us today? We pointed out that the temple today is Jesus. And part of that temple is us. We looked at verses in the New Testament that show the word temple. So if we're to apply this, we're to care for the temple, that means we care for one another. doesn't mean we care for this building, though there could be good reasons why we should care for our physical structures. The application for us today is care for God's people. And so might I encourage you to something that is very, in quotes, insignificant, very unglorious, something that is not even mandated in Scripture, would you consider coming on Wednesday nights? Coming and praying with a few people. Hearing some of the same requests. And yet knowing that an insignificant thing like gathering where two or three of God's people are, He'll be in the midst of them. Now, is Wednesday night commanded in Scripture? No, it's not. But that's one way. If you can't come Wednesday, maybe you could gather to pray with People other days of the week. Seek out other believers where you can encourage them and build up this body. You know, let's gather and pray. If you can't do Wednesday, gather and pray some other time for a revival in our midst. Let's gather and pray for the burdens of our hearts, the children in our midst, for our city. Let's gather and pray for God's glorious kingdom to come when faith will give way to sight, when our two meager coins that we give in our life they'll be shown to be valued more than we ever could have imagined. Let's pray. Lord, we pray even now. Because, Lord, it is not our strength. It is not the words of a pastor, but it is by your Spirit 
that your work will be done. Lord, would you come mightily in our midst that we would be a body that longs to see your glory now and longs even more for the fulfillment of it with you. Lord, may we not just be hearers of the word. May we be doers and may we long to see you face to face. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.